Welcome to Season 3 of The Lifestyle Chase, and I'm your host, Chris Little. This podcast features high performers who have found a way to live their best life while balancing their health, wellness, friends, and family. To help this podcast grow, please share it on social media, rate five stars, tell your friends, and check out the past 140 episodes and counting. You can follow me on Instagram at Christian Little and at The Lifestyle Chase. Thanks for listening. Let's get started. So welcome to The Lifestyle Chase, and I am joined by my good buddy, Trevor Costello. So this is episode 152. And Trevor, I want you to tell people like your icebreaker speech, like your elevator pitch. If you had 30 seconds to introduce yourself and the things that make you who you are, what would that sound like today? Okay, uh, for me, obviously, my name is Trevor Costello. Uh, Right now, I'm specifically a soccer coach and kind of a speed and agility geared towards soccer specific training. Uh, I've worked in strength and conditioning in the past, and I've done a plethora of things. Kind of what got me started in the whole coaching and training business was when I was about 15 or 16, I was too old to participate in some of the football and soccer camps, as those were my two sports um, through high school and college. Um, You know, I could no longer participate in some of those summer camps. And so I asked my coaches if I could volunteer my time to help out because I felt like I had something to offer to the athletes being the kind of person I was in the community. So I started with that. And then, you know, things kind of just took off from there where I realized I had a passion with helping others, uh, especially kids. So that's kind of my specialty. I work with pretty much eight to 14 year olds right now. And that's kind of my main focus. Obviously, I help out people with uh, fitness and personal training type of questions, but I don't really go into that because it's not so much my passion as it is developing athletes. Um, From that point, I started working with a little bit of gymnastics, basically five and six year olds, the basics and getting their movements down. Um, by the time I was 18, 19, I actually started up a Ninja Warrior program, um, kind of working on like parkour and again, just general movement and kind of getting kids into feeling out how their bodies work. Um, started with strength and conditioning over summer camps at the local high school, the high school that I attended. And from there, I started my own training business for speed and agility and worked with a couple soccer teams and football teams. Then I became the head trainer at actually Pursue Performance, uh, which is the shirt that I'm wearing right now. Shout out to Trevor Briggs. He was the owner and my business partner for a long time. And we ran that for about two years. And unfortunately, because of COVID, we had to shut that down. And obviously, my experience with rehab was one of those other things. In March, I checked into rehab. Uh, So my sobriety date is March 21st. I checked out on May 6th. And now I'm sitting at about coming up on eight months sober and never felt really better in my entire life. So I'm very thankful for that opportunity. Very thankful for a lot of the people that helped me get to this point. And uh, now that I'm back in the Dallas Fort Worth area, that's when I decided I was ready to pick up coaching again and start working with some of my younger athletes. Uh, It took a long time, uh, especially sobering up in that sense, but you know, especially like my mom, parents, family, friends, that all kind of helped me move into that direction where I needed to check myself into rehab Uh, very thankful for all of them. I would not be here without their help. So I can't really put that all on me. So that's why I gave that drug speech the other day at my high school. Cause you know, least I can do at this point in time and kind of what coaches and trainers all strive to be a part of is giving back. You know, if we have the keys to success for ourselves, we want to be able to give other people those keys to success for themselves. And I've received a lot of great feedback, giving that drug and alcohol speech on my personal experience with addiction and I've actually been in contact with several of the kids and teachers about, you know, people in their lives and also themselves who are just struggling 
not necessarily with drug and alcohol addiction, but the emotional uh, turmoil that sometimes comes with going through high school and developing and growing into the person that you want to become with that confusion of seeing so many different people, you know, wondering which one you want to identify with and which people you want to imitate. So, you know, with all those things considered, I'd like to be that tool and that resource for people to help kind of reach out to someone and level with someone who's gone through their experiences. And if I haven't gone through their experience, you know, at least give some advice from what I've seen because I've seen a lot and experienced a lot myself. So being able to give back is a huge part for me. So that was a little bit longer than 30 seconds in an elevator speech, but could have condensed it. Um, I wanted to just kind of go in there and explain myself and explain where I kind of am with things. That was the best elevator speech ever. Like I was here for that <laughs> whole thing. Loved it. Um, I think it's uh, powerful to be able to articulate so many experiences in such a short, like, um time frame like you really you condensed it in a way so we'll we'll kind of spend the episode talking more about a, a few of those pieces one of the things that you brought up that i really liked is like that whole idea of like kind of giving back or at least like being a leader for others and, and helping others like find strength and find knowledge um and we know each other primarily through like the compound performance mentorship and that's something that I wanted to to highlight a little bit here because I like giving Kyle Dobbs shout outs on the Lifestyle Chase. Um, how, how did you find um, Kyle Dobbs in the first place? I was kind of in a situation where I couldn't do the first compound mentorship or compound performance mentorship. And uh, after a couple months, I tried it out. But obviously, like I said, I went to rehab. I was struggling with drug and alcohol addiction. And I made it through about the first month of that one, about a year and a half or a year ago or something and then I decided to basically just quit because there was a bunch of other factors that were affecting me, stress in everyday life, um, wanting to party more than I wanted to actually focus on my goals and gaining knowledge and kind of experience with all those other people. And so I kind of bailed on him there. And then after I checked into rehab, I reached out to him and I apologized for bailing on him, uh, not making my final payments and just was like, I want to level with you. I feel like I have a lot of respect for you and I really like what you're doing. And moving forward, I'd like to do the next compound uh, performance mentorship. And then I signed up for the one that obviously you do did. And I believe that was Q3 this year. Um, got a lot of good things from that. And actually, in regards to Kyle right now, I am doing a one-on-one -on -one mentorship with him because I like all the group stuff. But for me, I really need to focus on just one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, so we do our meeting every Monday at 10 a.m. and kind of write out my goals for the week and figure out what I need to do to kind of get myself moving in the right direction. I love the group. Um, but for me, I was kind of seeing other people's issues doing the whole comparison thing. And as we know, comparison is the thief of joy. Um, so I kind of felt like I might've been behind or ahead of some coaches, but I didn't really want to compare myself. So I really felt like the one-on-one -on -one would be best for me. And then I'll be able to compare what the one-on-one -on -one experience is like with Kyle to the mentorship group setting. And obviously I met a lot of great people and made a lot of great connections with you yourself uh, included. And, you know, I keep in touch with all you guys through Instagram, through my posts, through your posts. And that's where I've kind of developed my own little network, you know, so shout out to Kyle and Matt and coach Sam. Uh, obviously they helped plug me in with a lot of those great people that I want to be around. And I basically, I think it's basically made me a better tool for my friends. You know, obviously I'm not charging for personal training, but I've got a group message with like three or four of my close friends. And one of them went down from, 260 the other day down to 230 and he hit his first 400 pound deadlift and then yesterday he texted me and told me he had about 350 on squat you know i'm really excited for him really happy for him and 
just being that tool to kind of getting them to success. And now he even tells me, you know, I feel like I know so much more about training and about my body and what I need to do in order to accomplish my goals. And that's kind of why I do it. You know, it's not for the money for me, but it's the experience and being able to give back. You know, I have those keys to success for myself. And obviously we're not going to be driving the same car, so to speak, if we reference our bodies as cars and kind of machines in that sense, but I can still figure out what keys he needs to figure out his way to get success. And then, you know, with other people, you know, I feel like I've been doing that same thing, probably five or six friends that reach out to me, you know, daily or at least weekly a couple of times and have questions. And I just love being able to talk them through that and get them to that point. And obviously my passion is athletes and developing them at a younger age to, you know, one of those things when I was in high school, we had this program for the football team called boys to men. And it kind of helped show me the kind of person that I wanted to be when I grew up. And uh, that's kind of the thing that I want to do. Obviously, I work with girls and boys, but help them grow up into mature, responsible adults and understand what they need to do to get to that point that they're trying to get to in life. So obviously, shout out to Kyle and the Compound uh, Performance Mentorship and connecting us has been a great experience. You know, I mean, we talk almost every day at this point and we were competing kind of head to head on the bike thing. And, you know, that was really fun for me during that uh, AMRAP program that they had us on. And I love doing it. So that's pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's like the the thing that stands out to me the most is hearing that side of Kyle because like uh, Kyle is very humble. Like he's one of the most uh, down to earth human beings that I know. I know a lot of people like him. I've had a lot of role models that are a lot like him. He reminds me of people that used to coach me. And I think that's what stands out to me. For me, my introduction to him was through uh, my buddy Dean Guido and Dean is basically like my beacon of what direction to get continuing education from. Like he's always kind of like pointed out good people to me. And then I've kind of like spread wings of my own and kind of um, become more independent. But it's just like every so often you come across people where when they say somebody is the real deal, you just listen. And then Mm -hmm. you experience that these people are the real deal. And then you become the person saying that these people are the real deal. So like if anybody has listened this far, um, go check out the compound performance mentorship. And honestly, they put out usually like four times a year, they'll do like a video uh, session where you can hop on for free. Uh, I don't know if they'll be able to always do that, but anytime that they offer anything, hop on it because I couldn't recommend anything else more. I mean, maybe a time will come that something's really awesome, but for the time being at the time of this recording, theirs is the most awesomest. Um, Mm -hmm. To dial things back in and talk about you and your story, uh, something that kind of got my attention was just like your your heavy involvement in sport and just like that that turning point when you became a coach. But what what I want to know about is like what got you into sports in the first place. Like how old were you, and like what inspired you to participate? Um. For me, I grew up, uh, we had a divorced family. My parents actually got divorced in second grade. Um, So I ended up with a split family and stepbrothers and stepsisters on both sides. But when I was younger, uh, my older brother and younger brother, all we kind of went towards the soccer path and following in my older brother's footsteps, you know, my older brother would be out back when he was four or five kicking the ball around with my dad and I was two or three and just, you know, kind of saw that and was like, that's definitely something I want to be a part of and join that. So I started with soccer, obviously. Uh, my dad was a very brilliant man. He's actually a child psychiatrist and graduated from Stanford himself. 
And uh, so I think that's one of the reasons I actually resonate a lot with Kyle because uh, of his psychology background. Um, and I'm actually taking a psychology class right now. I think it's so crazy because I'll be reading the articles and reading the chapters and everything. And it's just nothing that Kyle hasn't told me before. But now, like, he kind of gave me all the dots and the puzzle pieces, but the puzzle is starting to really connect. Not like he wasn't connecting it for me, but it's really connecting a whole lot faster for me. Me talking about environment and genetics and how things actually develop in the human mind and how we develop our own processes of experience and getting to that point. And for me, my experience was really just starting off with soccer. My dad, like I said, was a brilliant man and was like, we don't want to hone in on one sport too young because that's when the burnout phase starts to happen. And that's why when I work with my athletes now, I'm like, make sure you're, I'll text the parents. And I'm like, make sure your kid's grabbing a book or make sure if they like basketball, they're playing basketball. And I never have any problems. You know, one of my kids is a 2009 athlete. He's about 11 years old. And his parents are like, you can't make Friday sessions because he's got football those nights. And I'm like, that's awesome. Like, I love hearing that. I'll, you know, I'll work with him on Sundays when I can, but the fact that he's playing two sports really speaks to me and shows me that he's trying to keep his options open because you know he might not want to play soccer in two or three years and he wants to start specializing in football and that's going to be totally fine with me um but I try to keep them open and like I said going back to my dad he kept me in baseball a little bit kept me in basketball and football was kind of the last one I fell for but once my parents both remarried when I was in fourth grade both of my step siblings played tackle football so that was kind of my inspiration to slowly get into football and then one of my best friends moved into town when I was in fourth grade. Uh, he came from New Jersey and ironically I was an Eagles fan and he was an Eagles fan. And my parents, if they ever wanted me to become a Cowboys fan, it was too late at that point because my best friend and I both fall, fell for the Eagles and we would just play football every day on the playground. And that's when I was kind of like, let's get into that. And they didn't want me to touch tackle football until I could do it through school in seventh grade. So I played flag football and that's when I kind of honed in in fourth grade, fifth grade was when I switched and was like, okay, Baseball wasn't for me. You know, I had less hand-eye coordination because of my foot-eye coordination with soccer. Basketball, again, one of those things, you need a lot of hand-eye coordination, and I couldn't ever seem to get the ball in the basket. I could play good defense, but just didn't really enjoy it as much as I did soccer and football and went with the flag football route and got into tackle football by the time I was in seventh grade and then decided to play soccer for the school, even though I'd quit club and recreational soccer at that point and just kind of decided that those were my two sports. And uh, it was actually funny because my freshman year of high school, I was came playing kind of JV and dressing out for a couple of the varsity games, you know, not to play or anything, but just sit on the sideline and kind of get that experience. And I was kind of like, I don't really know if I want to play soccer. I want to specialize in football. And my older brother was a junior playing soccer at the school at that time. And he told the soccer coach that, and I'd done a couple camps with the soccer coach in seventh and eighth grade. And, you know, toot toot, blowing my own horn here, he said, and still kind of tells me to this day, you were, if not the, but one of the best athletes that I'd ever seen or worked with, just from a natural perspective, you were always able to jump higher than everyone else, move quicker side to side and run faster than everybody. And then your physicality was just something I couldn't compare because obviously I was a linebacker. So I knew how to really use my body to my advantage on the soccer field without really getting those fouls or getting those, you know, penalties called on us and things like that. So he actually told my younger brother or my older brother, he was like, that's fine. If he doesn't want to play soccer, uh, excuse my language here. If he just, you know, wants to be a little whiny baby and not play soccer. And when my older brother told me that I actually found the coach in the hallways during the, one of the passing periods. And I told him, I was like, Hey, I'm not that I'm gonna play soccer for you too. So that's when I decided to play soccer in high school. And uh, from that point, it was just easy that, you know, it was honestly, looking back on that burnout thing that I mentioned earlier, 
um, it was probably the best thing for me because I, you know, I would get out of soccer season in the spring and it would be about April timeframe. And I would be jumping into the end of the off season before we started spring football. And I would get, you know, two or three weeks of workouts in and I was just full pedal to the metal. I was like, I'm ready to go because I've been in soccer season. I haven't really been in the weight room. You know, we would do one or two weight room days a week and I would go do some workouts on my own on days that we didn't have games, but I hadn't really been in the environment. And I noticed that some of my friends that had been in off season for two or three months were kind of burning out. They didn't really want to put as much effort as I did. They didn't really have the energy that I did. And it was almost like a revamping where some of the coaches would tell me like, when you enter from soccer season and come into the off season and into the weight room, there's like a change that happens. And I felt like that was a little prideful for me, a little bit of an ego boost. Um, so that obviously went to my head a little bit, but looking back, you know, it was just really nice to get back into football and not feel burnt out and be ready to start again because I was really not focused on football for three or four months on end. I was straight up soccer. And then same thing when football season ended, it would be towards the end of the soccer off season and I would join soccer and the soccer coach would actually tell me still, you know, it was like a revamping when you showed up because there was honestly no one else my age. Um, there was a guy that was two years older than me that played football and soccer and no one else really younger than me that played both football and soccer. So it was kind of cool to get me back into the weight room and in both sports and see that kind of change that they would tell me about, you know, that kids wanted to start adding more weight. Kids wanted to start yelling and talking to each other a little bit more. That's one of those experiences that sticks with you. You know, I tell kids all the time when I go back to the high school and see them doing their strength and conditioning, I'm like, this is cool, but there's never going to be an experience like this in your life. If you go play college football, you're never going to have that experience. If you go to the NFL or anything professionally, you're never going to have another experience once it's all said and done because you can go to LA fitness and throw 200 pounds on bench and do that, but it's not going to feel the same as throwing 200 pounds on the bench and having three of your best friends that you grew up with your whole life sitting around you and hyping you up and being like, yo, let's knock out these five reps, knock out these 10 reps or whatever it is. And that experience is kind of special. And one of those that I look back on and I'm like, that's important for kids to especially like get that competitive nature and see what it's like to feel that kind of drive and energy, not just coming internally, but externally and having that environment where people want to see you succeed and push yourselves as far as you can. So, you know, hindsight, that wasn't necessarily all my, always my plan. When I started high school, I kind of wanted to specialize in football, ended up going with soccer. And I feel like it was one of those things that gave me an advantage where every year I'd have three or four months where I was only focused on football and three or four months where I was only focused on soccer. And obviously skill went down a little bit when I was going either direction, because as Kyle always says, his specificity has a cost and I would specify in one of those sports and the cost would be, you know, getting a little bit worse at football or getting a little bit worse at soccer. But I was able to use that muscle memory and that mind to muscle connection that people always talk about, you know, there's skeptics and on both sides of the realm with those, but at the same time, knowing that I'd done it before, it's like riding a bike. You know, you're always going to remember how to ride a bike, but sometimes it just takes you a little longer to get back to that speed that you were at. And as I noticed, as my high school career went on, it took me less and less time to turn over and get back into the groove of whatever sport that I was going back into. And it made it really easy for me, especially to feel like I wasn't burning out and specializing in one particular area. And, you know, I was able to keep the gas or the pedal on the gas or my foot on the gas the whole time, because almost year round, I was always just back into another sport and gave me, you know, zero time for breaks, but I was okay with it because it was always a different kind of 
gas and a different kind of drive that I had during those times. So I definitely look back on that and saying, thinking that it's important for especially high school athletes to develop in several different sports in several different areas. And, you know, a lot of parents are like, well, I want my kid to only be a baseball player or only be a soccer player or only be a football player, whatever it is, track and volleyball, softball and things like that. But I think the importance, obviously the studies even show the importance of early specialization is that usually kids burn out and don't want to play by the time they get to college. And that's no big deal because college is, you know, the point is education and expanding your knowledge. But, you know, at the same time, if you can get a little bit of your college played for, paid for and play a little bit of that sport you love, it gives you that distraction from just the education and helps you not really burn out in the education standpoint where you're just up studying all the time and always in the library and gives you that, you know, fun little break when you're playing sports and stuff. So for me, that under specialization was really a tool that I used to succeed a little bit and move forward in that direction. So I enjoyed that a ton. Well, I completely agree. Like when, when I reflect on everything that you said there and just the importance of like, uh, keeping things variable like where you can interchange different sports or different activities but you can maintain like a certain amount of like intensity or effort um and then it makes it to be something that you can do throughout the rest of your life like it doesn't have to be something where you uh are all focused on one sport up until the age of like 16 then it doesn't work out then you don't even have that sport and then you you struggle to get that uh tool in your toolbox back because it's so distanced and yeah like you talked about the research and just how valuable it is truly for athletes that want to perform in college to be able to perform in multiple sports and to just simply like when people talk about getting um strength training for like playing baseball or for playing soccer and stuff like just go to the gym and just do normal strength training like have have some personalization to the program, but um, just get strong and then apply it to your sport because like you're gonna get the skills from the repetitions of of the games that you play and the times that you lose and the times that you win. Like that, that's where you enhance your ability to kick the ball and all that stuff. But uh, I'll I'll kind of like dial us in a bit further here. Um, you you talked about your passion for sport and everything that you were involved in. Um, I can imagine that you probably got it up to a pretty high caliber. Like uh, how high of a level did you get to with all the different sports that you're, that you were doing and like what direction did that kind of have you going in? Um, so for me, it was a little bit of a personal experience. And uh, if you did listen to my drug and alcohol speech, uh, if you didn't, it's tagged on my profile. So if you ever, if you're one of those random people that's checking this out, um, you can follow me at TLC performance and obviously I'll post this and I definitely want you to follow Chris, uh, at Christian little, I believe. Um, so I'll say that, but for me, my experience was a little bit different because in regards to my drug and alcohol addiction, uh, like I touched on in my speech, um, my senior year, I actually got a DUI and I did have offers and looks from soccer and football, uh, different schools, uh, for all those levels. Um, and I was actually about to commit to a junior college up in Kansas for soccer. And then my goal was to attend that for two years, get my associates and then move on and hopefully go to a D one school for soccer. If not, you know, a D two or a D three, whatever it was just to continue my playing career and get some money paid or get some money to help pay for college and get that education. Um, but the week before I was planning on committing, um, 
the DUI actually took place and I got in a lot of trouble with that. Um, thank God it's off my record at this point. Um, but yeah, because of that, my parents told me that they didn't want me to take any offers and didn't really want me to leave town because they didn't trust me. And that made sense. Um, so I needed to kind of prove myself. And so the unfortunate thing there was staying at home for my first year and just going to community college. But like I mentioned in my story, I managed to stay relatively sober for 11 months. There was occasional times where I would go out and drink, but you know, the smoking and the drugs that was kind of off the radar at that point in time. And I was really focused in on school and wanted to figure out what I wanted to do. And I got back in the weight room, got back up to my playing weight for football. And I decided that I actually wanted to go play football and I was going to the university of Arkansas for school. And so my plan was to walk on. And so I met with the coaches and met with the recruiting coordinator. And he was like, we'll give you an opportunity as a walk on, um, give you an opportunity to earn your scholarship. And they were pretty much full at the time I was going to enter the school in the fall. So my goal was to enter in in the spring. And one of those things that actually sprung me into more of a, you know, if I didn't have the desire already made me really driven to become a trainer was I had a doctor who, you know, no knock on him or anything, but you know, he was about 300 pounds and couldn't really get up out of his desk without pressing his hand down on his desk and standing up. Yet this was the guy that had the ability to look at me because I had a little bit of back pain and I went in and got an MRI and realized that I had a couple of slipped discs and he was pretty much telling me like that was the reason I had issues. And looking back on it now, I understand that we can fix these things with ourselves with intelligent strength training. And one of those things that wasn't intelligent for me at the time was I was just like, if I go into the weight room and lift as much as I can, as hard as I can, as often as I can, then things will start to fix themselves. And that was the wrong thing because like Kyle always talks about, it comes down to the prep and the capacity, the sensory motor and capacity type of exercises that teach us to move a certain way and teach us how much we can do movement in that way before we go to our output and our output was our strength training. But for me, I was really just going in there and looking at output every single day. You know, it was very little warm up. There was almost no capacity. Everything was between three and five reps, which isn't a bad thing if I was looking at a power lifter stance. So I wasn't really into the performance side of training at the time, but yet because I was super strong, I thought, you know, I could handle playing football again and around my, you know, October or November timeframe, I went back home and the doctor was like, the best thing for you is to not play football anymore. So I was already stuck at the University of Arkansas. And so that's not a soccer school. So I was like, well, if I can't play football, maybe I can play soccer. And because of that, I was just like, well, let's call it quits. And the other thing was I did want to try playing football, but with my drug addiction and my alcohol addiction, I was scared to death of taking a drug test because my thought process, and I think this still holds true, is they're going to drug test the freshmen and the walk-ons, the guys that don't really matter, even though it might be a random drug test, those are the guys they try and aim for because if one of them fails it, it's not one of their starters that is going to be pulled from the game on Saturday. You know, let's say University of Arkansas is playing Alabama or LSU and one of those powerhouses, they don't want them to fail the drug test. And that's one of those political things that I can't confirm or deny. I'm not going to be out here saying like, that's definitely what happens. I don't know what happens because I never made it. So I went into the office of the recruiting coordinator in November and told him that, I appreciate the offer and the chance to give me, you know, that walk on experience and that walk on ability, but I didn't want to play for two, two factors. Mainly one of them was, you know, I want to be able to walk when I'm 30 or 40 and play catch with my kids and play soccer. So the back played a role into it. And now I look back on it and I'm like, I'm completely fine. You know, I still probably have those issues with my spine, 
But as far as strengthening up my musculoskeletal system, those issues no longer affect me, especially that lower right back pain. You know, I don't even think about it. And because I don't think about it and I train a different way, it's not really been an issue in my past or my recent past for sure. Um, and then the other one was just, I was afraid to take a drug test because I knew that I wasn't able to stay sober for any long period of time. You know, even at that point in time, I was pretty much using on a daily basis. Um, so that kind of caused a little bit of the problem. So I was never really able to take my talents past high school, but that's one of those extra drives that I have now or now towards coaching is being able to level with kids and be like, look, if you want to play at the college level, there's going to be drug tests. There's going to be expectations where if you're drinking every day, if you're using drugs every day, you're going to be weeded out and you're not going to be able to use that opportunity and they're going to pull your scholarship. And then all of a sudden you might have to come home because your parents can't afford or don't want to pay for your education at somewhere else because they're just upset with you for using drugs or using alcohol and blowing that opportunity that you had which is what happened to me. And I say, you know, I blew my opportunity and God knows what might've happened. I could have ended up getting a scholarship or earning one or playing on the university of Arkansas, but I was never really able to get to that level because the desire and the drives and the goals, like I touched on in my drug speech kind of phased out because of the drug use. You know, I was able to convince myself that the insanity of using drugs was better for me than playing football or playing soccer at a high level and trying to get some of that college paid for. So that was kind of what struck me down. But looking back at this point in time, that's why I'm so driven to be a coach is at very least if kids stop playing at 16, 17 or finish their high school career, I want them to be a better person than I was at that point in time and be able to level with this, them with my own experience. You know, there's a lot of coaches out there. They're not bad coaches at all, but they can't level with kids and athletes on that experience level. You know, some of the kids like myself, you know, I was able to be like, I'm on varsity as a sophomore for football and soccer and I was able to be like, you know, I can use drugs and alcohol because everyone in the community still looks up to me and knows who Trevor Costello is and sees him as this like high level athlete who's still going to take his game to the next level no matter what happens. And that was the thoughts of insanity that prevailed in my head and kind of prevented my career from moving forward. But as I talk with some people nowadays, even my friends are like, you're where you need to be for a reason, you know, you're in this position in life to affect other people and give them that feedback and give them that experience and give them that help. And that's what I really like find is my big reason to for drive for success. And that's my fulfilling purpose is being able to work with my kids and work with my athletes and go forward in that direction. So that's important to me to be able to give back, you know, like we talk about the tools and the toolbox, you know, I wasn't alone in this process at all. And my mom especially has been a huge driving factor for my success. And, you know, if I could give a shout out to her, you know, I'm going to repost this on Facebook and hopefully, hopefully she gives it a look and shares it or doesn't share it. You know, it doesn't matter to me. I hope she understands really how important she was to me in this process and succeeding and really getting to this point in my life. Um, so now for me, it's just all about giving back. And that's pretty much my biggest why for why and how I do things and how I move as a person. Yeah. Well, yeah. that was, that was awesome. I mean, just to, to think about what it must've felt like to have put all of that effort in and to have gone through the experience that you went through, like a common phrase that, I mean, I bring up a lot is, um, I take it from this song. I think it's by Andy Grammer or something, but the song is called, I wish you pain. And it's just kind of like that song stands out to me because a lot of the most influential people, um, have gone through some, some tough shit. And it can be, the dynamics of it can be very different. Like, sometimes it's just, like, on an emotional level, it's very heavy. But from, like, a 
outsider perspective level, it doesn't look like that that bad. And then in other instances, it's just heavy stuff on all on all ends of the spectrum. Like your experience, I feel the heaviness in that in just like understanding how much had to change and how much um, just self empowerment that you needed to facilitate your your new path and to um, kind of be willing to uh, lean into the the discomfort of uh, taking care of yourself when when it was probably really tough because like addiction and stuff is a is a real thing. Um, talking about like your your DUI experience, like what was life like then? Did you kind of like I'm trying to like frame it in a way that uh, helps people that might be at that time in their life um, relate. So what, what was going through your mind in that time? Like what was your day to day like that? That was the, the outcome. Like, did you feel stressed at that time? Did you feel isolated at that time? Um, tell me a bit more. Um, so specifically with the DUI at that point in time, um, I'll kind of lean back into what I did during my drug speech, but I talked about how, you know, having older siblings gave me older friends as well. So around my junior year, uh, people were starting to get into the party scene and that's when I was like, well, I've got a beard. I'm built like an older human. Let's go try this getting beer thing. So I tried it at a gas station. There was no ID or anything like that. And I was just like, well, it's the same person working every Friday and Saturday night at this gas station. So I started to use that to my advantage and I can get beer and wine. And, you know, there was four locos and all that crazy stuff. We'll keep that on the side. Don't have to go too into that. But for pretty much any party, people could reach out to me and I could get alcohol for that party. And then the other thing was I knew people that were out of high school and kind of older that had connections to get good hookups with weed. And then I started selling as well. So for me, my everyday lifestyle was kind of like, you know, even though I would be at football practice or soccer practice, as soon as I left, you know, I would tell my parents I was still at practice and then I would end up going to sell or buy alcohol for people and make a little bit of money that way. So I was like, well, I don't really need to be doing much. Um, even though I had a job on weekends, um, I was making good money basically as a 16, 17 year old, you know, being able to pocket three or $400 a week and I had no expenses. So, you know, it was just like, I was making good money and had a lot of cash on me at all times. So that was kind of the driving factor. I was like, well, I know it's a risk, but the reward is the good money and the good feeling of being, you know, like, I felt like I belonged. I felt like people wanted to have me around. And the reality is, you know, I still have good friends and still, you know, my best friend group to this day was all people that I went to high school with. Um, but there was a lot of people that not necessarily they didn't like me, but they chose to have me around because of those advantages. You know, he can get us alcohol whenever he can get us drugs whenever he always has the hookup. And then at the same time, I felt like I was actually a pretty cool person. So all those factors really just filled my ego and put me in this situation where I was like, I'm on top of the world right now. You know, I kind of, everyone in the town knew me, whether it was different high schools, whether it was my own high school and everyone knew they could reach out to me for that assistance to get them into the party scene. So for me, when I got the DUI, it was really tough because I felt like my whole life went on pause, you know, it was like people would reach out to me and I was like, I can't do that. I'm grounded. You know, it was a really weird experience for me. Cause by the time I got to 18 years old, my parents had really kind of leaned up on their restrictions you know, if you want to stay out tonight, just let us know where you're going. 
but I took advantage of that and lied and would be like, Oh, I'm staying at one of my best friend's house. And, you know, I would actually be out at some random party, you know, 20 or 30 minutes away just with people I didn't really know that well, but because they heard of me and they knew that I could, you know, hook them up with those things and they would invite me out. And I was starting to make a lot of bad decisions and not necessarily surround myself with bad people. And like, I touched on that in my story, like it's no one's fault, but my own. Um, and for a lot of people in high school, it was just that it was just an experiment, um, to do drugs, to do a little bit of drinking and figure out what they wanted to enjoy in life. But it became a lifestyle for me eventually. And for me, when I got the DUI, like I said, my whole life went on pause, you know, I was in good terms with that coach up at, uh, the junior college that I was about to commit to in Kansas. And that next week I had to call him and tell him that I was just not interested. You know, none of the coaches actually found out about my DUI for whatever reason. Usually when that happens, people find out, but it was kept pretty low key. So no one knew, um, even my high school coaches never found out, uh, or maybe they did and they just didn't say anything because they wanted me to continue playing sports. Um, but yeah, it was just my whole life went on pause. You know, I was only allowed to go to the gym and, you know, they took my car away. So it was, you know, if my older brother was taking me to the gym or my dad or mom was taking me to the gym, then I would be there for an hour, hour and 15 minutes. And then they would come pick me up. And that was how I got places. Um, and yeah, like I said, just the whole life went on pause and I started to reevaluate things and think about things. And for me, you know, it took so long because like in my story, I was like, I was just looking for the next party and the next and the next. And I was looking for the next big thing that would be fun, but it was really just short-term fun. I really had no long-term goals. I couldn't tell you where I wanted to be in five years. I couldn't tell you what I wanted to be doing. And after, you know, I got the DUI and was able to sober up and realize what I wanted to do in life that's when my goals and drive started to go back up. But like in my story, I talk about how my first semester in college, you know, I had a 4.0. That's still my first and only 4.0 semester, even through my high school career. You know, the last time I had all A's was seventh or eighth grade and I started using drugs in eighth grade. So that's when things kind of started to go downhill. But then the insanity crept back in where I was like, okay, I can use a little drugs and use a little alcohol because I'm really driven. And what I didn't realize is once I got back into that, area my thing my grades and my drive started to go down there was an exact correlation you know there's no question in my mind where i can say there's a correlation between heavy drug use heavy alcohol use and grades going downhill you know if you want to drink a little bit on a friday or saturday night if you have the time to um go ahead and do that i will say that but drug use for the most part is one of those distracting factors that limited me and kind of took me downhill and off course and I wasn't able to see that in the time. Um, and it's one of those, we always say hindsight, 2020 hindsight, I could really see what was happening. And even in the moment I saw what was happening, but I thought it was still cool. Quote unquote, you know, I was like, I'm still the cool guy and I still do my schoolwork. I still get my papers written. I still do my math and science homework and all those things. So what's the big deal? And that's the biggest lie that I told myself is what's the big deal. And now that I know in the position that I'm in and I'm where I'm at in life, the big deal was that I was sacrificing the drug use and the partying and the alcohol use for my grades, for my drive, for my thriving, uh, basically just looking for knowledge and looking to expand my horizons. And for me, with all those factors played in, it was kind of one of those back to the Kyleism, I guess I, I'll talk to Kyle every week and I'm like, I used one of the Kyleisms, um, you know, specificity as a cost and where I was specifying my skills in life was 
how to still be the cool guy who partied and got alcohol and got drugs for parties and got them for myself. And like I touched on in my story, there was just a time when I realized that I was no longer an athlete. I, like all the excuses that I'd come up with in my head all kind of fell off because I was no longer that athlete. I was no longer, you know, the role model in the community. I was no longer using for any reason. And I was just using for myself. Like it used to be like, I would, okay, I'm going to a party. So I'm going to use, or, okay, I'm going out for drinks on a Tuesday night. Cause there's a deal at whatever restaurant. And so that's a good reason to have a couple margaritas, but for other people, it was a couple margaritas. And for me, it was eight or nine. And then after that, I would go use drugs and I would be out till one or two in the morning and I had an 8am class. And so then I started slowly stop going to those classes and stop being driven. You know, I still worked a little bit and this all kind of occurred when I got my DUI, but through that first semester, I was able to stay sober because I kept a small friend group and that small friend group that I had was really driven when it came to working out in school and all those things. But it just got to the point where I got vamped back up. And like we always say in addiction and alcohol is anon alcohol anonymous, cocaine anonymous, all those things that I was in and go to meetings for. And, you know, I have a sponsor now who kind of helps me out. Granted, I haven't really spoken to him in a long time. Um, those are the things they tell you to stay involved in because the biggest thing for addicts and people like me is even though I'm coming up on eight months sober, if I was to just smoke a joint tonight or tomorrow or whatever it was, or just have a beer, my, I would pick back up right where I left off and where I left off was daily usage. And for me, it's just like, because of my addictive personality it's how to hone in those skills with my addictive personality towards the right things and towards those things that I see as benefits to accomplishing my goals and figuring out what those goals even are. And now I can see as clear as I can, you know, it's always going to become more clear every day what I need to do for that next step. But, you know, back to, you know, kind of an Alcoholics Anonymous uh, thing that we say is one day at a time. And, you know, that's the best advice that I could give anyone who's listening or is still on the podcast at this point or whatever it might be, you know, take everything one day at a time. Like you can have that goal three months from now, but realistically, you have to take that one step because three months, let's say that's 90 days, that's 90 steps. If you don't take the step that you need to take today, and honestly, it's not a big deal if you don't take that step. But if you take the step tomorrow, then that's going to put you one step closer towards that goal and towards where you want to be. And goals are always one of those variables that's changing. You know, even a month from now, my three month goal might completely change and be something else. But if I'm doing something to move forward, then I'm minimizing those steps backwards and step backwards happen because of injuries, because of stress, because of losing a job and because of COVID, the shuts down, the shutdowns, you know, being able to lose that socialization for some people like me, I crave socialization. I love being around my friends. I love being around other people, but for me, it's also a huge benefit to be by myself because that's where I learn a lot about myself and take those experiences and those experiences and behaviors of other people and put them into my own lifestyle and decide what I want to imitate and what I want to identify with and what kind of person I want to be. So I know I've kind of gone off track here from that DUI specifically, but the DUI just put my whole life on pause. And it's one of those situations where I never really felt that way again until it came down to the point where in my story, I even mentioned that coronavirus was actually my saving grace. And the fact that my facility where I trained at and the club that I was running security at both shut down. So I had no way of making income. Granted, I was dealing drugs. I, I could have made that work. Do I really want to be doing this because I'm 23 years old? Do I want to continue selling drugs? Is this where I want to be five years from now? When the reality is my goals were, you know, meet someone, fall in love or not. 
but you know, I wanted a family. I want kids. I want to be able to buy a house one day and live in that area where I'm raising someone or some multiple kids to succeed and be great adults. And that's going to be kind of my legacy, but I couldn't see myself accomplishing that with the drug dealing. You know, if you're in that environment and you're in that kind of lifestyle, there's really a few ways out. And, you know, they'll talk about it in movies where there's, you know, it's a gang based movie or it's, you know, robbers and stuff like that. And they're like, the only way out of this lifestyle is, you know, you have a mom or a grandma or you go to jail and a mom or a grandma that saves your life. And for me, it was definitely my mom that saved my life and pulled me from that lifestyle. Um, so again, back off track, but trying to kind of return to the DUI. I never felt like that until coronavirus hit and shut down both of my jobs. And I was like, I've got nothing and I need help. So how do I get that help? And for me, it was checking into rehab and that feeling from the DUI was very comparable to the rehab uh, experience that I had and just basically changing my life and getting it back on track in, in a way, in a few senses, you know, saving my life. Cause God knows where I'd be if I never checked into rehab right now, you know, maybe I'd still be living on my own. Maybe I'd still be drug dealing. Maybe I'd still be doing whatever it was because the next opportunity for me was always what's going to make me more money, not what's going to make me happy on the inside and what's going to bring me peace. And now I have this sense of peace and this sense of security and protection in myself because if someone comes at me for whatever reason and it's like, well, I wouldn't be doing that or you shouldn't be doing this. I'm like, that's fine because it's what I want to do and it's not what you want to do. And then I try to see things from their perspective and I'm like, maybe it isn't. It's just that our core values don't align and they want to be doing something else, but that's not an insult to them. That's just their choice and their lifestyle right now. And maybe it'll change. Maybe it won't change, but it's not my place to knock on them. It's just a sense of security and a sense of inner peace that I have with myself that I gained from getting that DUI for a split second and then just let those voices of insanity creep back in. And then now with rehab, it's like still those voices of insanity and it'll always happen as a drug addict and an alcoholic. Those voices of insanity will still go on for the rest of my life where even today, like, you know, my friends will be out drinking and that's the kind of friends that I want to be around. And I really appreciate them and respect them for that is, you know, pretty much every Saturday night, we'll go out to a bar or to a club and drink a little bit or they'll drink a little bit. I apologize. I won't, but they'll always ask me, are you okay doing this? Cause if you're not okay, or you feel like out of place, we don't have to go out tonight. And we usually go to small, uh, comfortable scenes that aren't, you know, too crazy or too jam packed. And that's what I appreciate as well. Um, but they respect me and they show me that respect where if they don't want, if I don't want to be around drinking tonight, we won't go out. We'll just stay in and we'll hot tub. We'll hang out. We'll play some ping pong. We'll watch a movie, whatever it is. Cause they'll show me that respect. And when we're out and about on occasion, you know, it's just like, what if I go smoke this joint with someone? Cause I can find someone who wants to go smoke a joint. Or what if I go find someone to go to the bathroom with and just do one bump of cocaine or find someone who has a Xanax pill or whatever kind of pill to help me kind of sleep tonight, whatever it might be, or just have a beer those voices of insanity are still there, but I'm able to suppress them because of that inner peace and security, knowing that, Hey, that's just not going to help me accomplish those goals. And that's not going to allow me to take that next step forward to getting where I want to go. And for me, where I want to go is finish this college degree and get a teaching certification so that I can teach and coach at the high school level. And then, you know, go beyond that, hopefully in the next couple of years, but be secure in who I am. And that's the most important thing for people. I believe is when you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, finding that sense of security and that protection that you have of yourself and of others to get to that point of self-actualization at the very top of the pyramid. And I, right now I feel like I'm kind of at that point of self-actualization 
But the thing with it is it's always on a continuum at any point in time, you can lose that sense of security and protection and use those, lose those biological needs at the very bottom of it, where it's just, you know, find food, find water, find shelter. And again, just phasing back into kind of that speech that I gave, you know, at any given moment, I can lose all the work that I've done and go in that direction again, or I can just keep on the same track and be aware of my surroundings and aware of myself, my own thoughts and emotions and have complete control over them. And I won't always be able to control those thoughts of insanity, but I will always be able to control how I respond to those and what kind of environment I want to put myself in to appropriately respond to those according to my needs and my goals and my desires. And for everyone, it's always going to be different. And that's what respecting it is about for coaching, especially in training, kind of moving into that direction now. And then just in your lifestyle, whatever your goal is, write it down, you know, have an idea. I have a goal board and everything. I have a planner to let me know what I need to do daily to help accomplish these goals. And those are things that I've done at certain points in my time. Uh, but I noticed that I did those things most when I was sober, when I was uh, not using mind altering substances and was able to hone in on my skills and use those to my advantage. And for whatever people want to do in life, whether it's be an accountant, be in real estate, own their own business, run a construction company, be an engineer, be a doctor, figure out what you want to do and then figure out how you need to do that. Because a lot of people have goals, but a goal that's not being worked towards is just an idea. You know, if you say you want to do something and you're not doing anything to work towards that, it's just an idea and ideas are great, but accomplishing those ideas is becoming a goal or is creating a goal. And then once you create that goal, doing what you need to, to accomplish it. And so for me now I have this clear mindset and view of how to accomplish my goals. And because of that, for me, it goes hand in hand with sobriety and for everyone, it's not going to be the same. Some people can control having a couple beers and some people can control, you know, I'll even tell people I'm like, I don't necessarily see weed as a gateway drug, even though it could be, in an addict situation. For me, it was never going to be just that. And we see kind of that, you know, it's a lot of legalization throughout the United States. And some people might just be able to have a joint and go two or three weeks without it and not want another one. For me, it was, I would have one and I couldn't go two or three hours without wanting another one because I wanted to continue on that realm of getting the next best high, which is again, something I uh, touched on in my speech a little bit was I always wanted to level up. And with my addictive personality, now it's that, you know, I want to read a book and then I want to read the next one. And I want to find someone who's going to, you know, guide me and mentor me like Kyle and like yourself even and Matt and coach Sam and all those other coaches that I've come in contact with. I want to find that next person to help me level up. And one thing I was talking about with one of my friends yesterday was actually, she was mentioning, she's like, how do you kind of gain this knowledge? You know, you've not gone to college really. You're still at the sophomore level and you've just got this like wide base of knowledge and understanding of other people and their experiences. And I said, one of the things that I try to do is never be the smartest person in the room. And by not being the smartest person in the room, like if I realize I might be the smartest person in the room, no offense to the people around me, I'll still stay around them and I'll still hang around them. But I try to find the next room that I'm going to get to that's going to elevate me to the next level. And obviously, I don't have to spend all my time in that room metaphorically. You know, the room would be just, you know, Instagram or Facebook or some sort of social media or listening to a podcast or reading a book. I want to get that next level of education, of knowledge, of understanding to help me improve my own personal skills again so I can give back. 
and being able to give back is kind of what fulfills my purpose and shows shows me that that's what I want to do is be that resource and that beacon of light or that beacon of hope for someone who might be going through these experiences. Like you've touched on just being able to speak to some of those people that are going through this stuff or maybe not be going through this stuff right now, but eventually they might go through this stuff and they can look back on this episode or look back on this podcast and even reach out to me at whatever point in time. And I like to see myself as I can be that person and be that reason that someone gets to the next level and giving credit where it's due again for me, you know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for dozens of people that helped me get to this point. So I can never say this is necessarily my message. This is my version of the message but it's been passed down for generations and generations so that I could hand it to you. And then your goal is once you receive this message, edit it, change it however you need to make it your message, change it a little bit to where it has your uniqueness and then pass it off to the next person. And that's the point kind of that I see in life. You know, I've read a lot of spirituality books and the biggest thing that I've taken away is I was trying to figure out, you know, what do all the religions and the spiritual people in this world have in common? And honestly, the one thing that I found in common in all the books that I've read is that man is here to help other man. And I use that to kind of drive me as my why, how do I help the next person in line and how do I get that help myself, which is what I was touching on just a little earlier, finding the next person who's going to help me level up. And then I look back and I go to the other direction where finding the next person that I can help level up. And then when they level up, they can do the same. They can go find someone else and I can find someone else. And then we can both go back down and find another person. And pretty soon we're all bringing up more and more people and it becomes, becomes kind of a pyramid scheme in that sense where everyone's always leveling up together because no one's always going to be at the very top and no one should always be at the very bottom. The point of life is to figure out how you can get as close to the top as possible. And once you get to your metaphorical top, how do you raise that level so that you can continue to get better? Because the moment you stop trying to get better is the moment you're starting to go backwards because that ceiling might continue to raise for you. But if you're not taking those steps to continue reaching the ceiling, that's where it starts to become a little bit detrimental. And you start to have this ego boost and this ego feeling where you're like, I've fulfilled my purpose and I'm done in life. And pretty much when you're done in life is when they put you six feet under, unfortunately, but we're all here for a reason and we're all here to do something. The goal of life is to figure out what that thing is. And one thing I always say is, you know, a lot of people say everything happens for a reason and I get that, but I always say everything happens and it's up to us to give it a reason because something might happen to you and you have two or three different options as to what you can do with that happening and what you can do to pass that experience on or change your experience for the future. But it's your choice what you do. I believe in free will and free choice pretty heavily to where I'm like, what happens to you happens. Nothing you can do about it. But your choice is how do you respond to this action to create change and help someone else in their environment and then also help and change your own environment. Stay tuned for part two of this episode with Trevor Costello coming soon.